guys, how you guys can have a little more energy. How you guys doing? How'd everyone enjoy the race tour? Glad to hear it. Well, it is my honor to introduce our next speaker, uh, Mr. Robert Spencer. Uh, Mr. Robert Spencer is the director of Jihad Watch, a program of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and the author of 27 books, including multiple New York Times bestsellers. He has led seminars on Islam and Jihad for the FBI, the U.S. Central Command, and numerous other agencies in the U.S. intelligence community, and he has discussed these issues at a workshop sponsored by the U.S. State Department and the German Foreign Ministry. He is a weekly columnist and has written many hundreds of articles about jihad and Islamic terrorism, as well as countless appearances on TV networks and radio programs across the globe. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Robert Spencer. Thank you very much. I expect you have all heard that there is some trouble going on in Gaza. And I thought that it would be useful to explain what the trouble is coming from and how you are not being told the truth, most likely, at your university, especially if you are at one of our nation's illustrious and well-respected public universities. The uh, issue in the first place, as you have possibly heard, is that Israel is occupying Palestinian land, and if Israel would end the occupation, then everything would be all right and there would be peace. Have you ever heard that? Okay. Everything about that statement is wrong. There is no occupation, and there isn't even any Palestinian land. And if Israel were to get off what is supposed to be the Palestinian land, there would not be peace. Every part of it is wrong. So what is the real situation? The real situation is that this is a religious war that has a political aspect. It is not a war over land that is being occupied. And yet it is. Paradoxically, both are true at the same time. The reason why goes back to the Islamic holy book, the Quran, which in chapter 2, verse 191, you can open it now and see, it says, drive them out from where they drove you out. Drive them out from where they drove you out. In those just a few words, that's the whole conflict right there. Now, even that has to be explained further because the Israelis did not drive the Palestinians out of this land. If you go back to 1948, when the modern state of Israel was founded, you will see, if you read the newspapers of the time and read all the debates in the United Nations and all the international discussions about the creation of the state of Israel, you will come across the fact that the Arab League told the Palestinian Arabs to leave the area when the state of Israel declared its independence in May 1948. Why did they tell them to leave the area? Because the surrounding Arab states Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan were declaring war on Israel as soon as it declared its independence and they planned to destroy Israel completely. They wanted the Arabs out of the line of fire so that they would not be hurt and then in a few weeks when there was no more Israel they could come back. Well, as it turned out, they did not win the war. But that still does not mean that the Israelis drove them out. They left. 
Once they left, they sided with states that were avowed enemies of Israel. And so they weren't allowed back in. It's perfectly reasonable. The mythology, however, ever since then, among the Palestinian Arabs, has been that they were driven out, and thus they have a divine command, a command from Allah, the supreme God, to drive out the Israelis. Because that statement, drive them out from where they drove you out, being in the Quran, is the word of Allah, the perfect word of Allah that has existed forever with him in paradise and was delivered through the angel Gabriel to the prophet Muhammad. And consequently, there's no arguing with it. There's no negotiating. There's no mitigating it. There's no compromise. There's no partition or sharing. It is all the land of the Muslims. There is no size that the state of Israel could be that would be acceptable in this view. If the state of Israel were the size of this barn, it would not be acceptable and Hamas would still be fighting against it. If the state of Israel were the size of a postage stamp, it would not be acceptable and Hamas would still be fighting against it. But Hamas also, it must be said, is fighting is the Islamic resistance movement. Everything it does is based on Islam. That's what Hamas means, Islamic resistance movement. It's an acronym for it. But Hamas is fighting not just for a Palestinian state. And for that, we have to understand the other part, another aspect of this that you've been lied to about, and that is that there aren't any Palestinians. Not only is there no occupation, there are no Palestinians. The Palestinians were invented in 1964. Now you might say, but that's crazy, because obviously if there were people who were Palestinians in 1964, many of them were around in 1963 and they must have been something. Yes, they were Arabs. They are not linguistically or culturally or religiously the slightest bit different from the Arabs of Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. And so when did they become the distinct Palestinian people and why? Well, 1964, and it happened at the uh, behest of the KGB, the Soviet Union spy service. Now, why did the Soviet Union care to create a fictional nationality and ethnicity? Because they were fighting a propaganda war. And if you go to a public university or if you know about what the public universities are like today, you know that there is nobody better at propaganda wars than the communists. And they're fighting them on campuses all over the country today. And the propaganda war that they were facing at that time, the propaganda challenge, was that people love the underdog. And you have, if you look on a map, you had Israel, this tiny state that on a globe you could barely see it, and it's surrounded by 22 massive Arab states that all hate it and want it destroyed. And then all the non-Arab Muslim states that also hate it and want it destroyed. And like I say, people love the underdog, Israel was very popular in the United States in the 1950s and 60s because it was this very tiny people standing up against a massive force and holding it off. They defeated all those Muslim countries in 1948 and again in 1967 and again in 1973. So the Soviets and Yasser Arafat, who was the leader of the Palestinian Arabs, they got together and they had an idea. 
If people love the underdog, then we'll give them one to love. An even smaller group of people facing the massive Israeli war machine. And they created the Palestinians. Where did they get the name Palestinian? If you look, <clears throat> excuse me, if you look at those newspapers again from 1948, and every discussion of the conflict when the state of Israel was founded in 1948, you will not find any mention of Palestinians. So where did they get this name from? Well, the land was called Palestine from 134 AD. What was it called before 134 AD? It was called Judea. What does Judea mean? The land of the Jews. Then the Roman Empire, which was trying to keep control over Judea, in 134 AD, there was this guy Bar Kokhba, and he was the Messiah. He wasn't really, but he said he was. He fought a war against the Romans. He lost. The Romans had had enough of these people keeping on fighting against them. They expelled the Jews from Judea, although most of them didn't leave. They were officially expelled. And <clears throat> they renamed the land Palestine. Where did they get the name Palestine? They looked in the Bible, and they found the ancient enemies of the Israelites in the Old Testament, the Philistines. And they said, you know how we can really needle the Jews even more? We'll call this land the name of their ancient enemy, the Philistines, who had long since died out. There were no Philistines by 134 AD, and there are none today. So the whole thing was an artificial creation from the beginning. Judea was renamed Palestine by the Romans, but it was a region. It was the name of an area. If you uh, are from New York City or if you've ever been to New York City, you may have heard of Brooklyn. Brooklyn is an area. It's a place. And you could say there are Brooklynites, but if you start talking about Brooklyn's nationality and the right of the Brooklyn people to self-determination, people would think you were nuts. And it would be the same thing with Palestine from 134 AD up until modern times. It was the name of an area. And various people lived there. Jews lived there all through history. After the 7th century, Arabs invaded. And or in the 7th century, Arabs invaded. And the Turks came in later. <clears throat> and a lot of the people who were, called, who were there were called Jews were called Arabs, some of them were called Christians, some of them were called Turks. Nobody ever called anybody Palestinians. There were no Palestinians. It would be like calling people from Brooklyn as if they were a separate ethnicity and nationality. Maybe you could say that about some of them, but really it's not a separate individuality. It's not a separate group of human beings, it's just a place. Anyway, so what happened next? <clears throat> By the time of the 20th century, the dawning of the 20th century, you have the Ottoman Empire in control of that territory, Palestine, as it is called today. They actually called it South Syria. They didn't even call it Palestine. But the Ottoman Empire was falling. And after World War I, it dissolved altogether. And one of its last acts, it signed over that territory to the League of Nations, the precursor to the United Nations. And the United Nations 
gave it to Britain? Did they give it to Britain so that British people would move to Judea that had been renamed Palestine or South Syria? No, they gave it to the British in what was called the British Mandate for Palestine that was expressly for the purpose of creating a Jewish national home. The Jews had been stateless people for 2,000 years, for the most part, although like I said, some of them always lived there in, in Judea, and they were persecuted in many countries on earth. And so the League of Nations said they should have a state of their own, and the British are charged with setting it up. The British did not like this job. They didn't want to do this. And so one of the first things they did was take, the reason why they didn't want to do this, by the way, is because they had been fighting against the Ottomans, the Turks, and the Arabs helped them out against the Ottomans. And so in order to reward the Arabs who helped them out against the Ottomans, they actually took two-thirds of the mandate for Palestine that was for a Jewish national home and gave it to the Arabs and called it Jordan. And it is called Jordan today. And they, it's called the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, right? And the Hashemite king, what's a Hashemite Kingdom? The Hashemites were a family from Arabia. And they lost out in Arabia to another family, the Sauds. And so we have Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, as a consolation prize, because the Arabs had helped the British, they gave Jordan to the Hashemites. And they left one-third of it for the Jewish national home. And that's the part that's supposed to be on occupied territory in the West Bank and Gaza. But the West Bank and Gaza are just as much part of what was set aside for the Jewish national home as the rest of Israel. So actually, there is no country on earth that has any claim to that territory under international law, legally, except Israel. Not only that, when you're talking about occupation, in 1948, when the state of Israel won that war against Egypt and Syria and the rest of them, Egypt occupied Gaza and Jordan occupied the West Bank, only it wasn't called the West Bank back then. In 1950, they renamed it. They renamed the West, they renamed the West Bank. What was it called before 1950? Judea and Samaria. So we have Judea actually renamed twice. First, the Romans renamed it Palestine, and then the Jordanians renamed part of it West Bank. Both of them were trying to obscure the fact that this was actually the land of the Jews. But meanwhile, so you have from 1947 to 1948 to 1967, the occupation by Egypt in Gaza and the Jordanians in the West Bank. And not for one minute did you hear anybody ever say, hey, this is terrible. This is occupied territory. The Jordanians should get out and give the Palestinians their state and the Egyptians should get out of Gaza, and it should all be a Palestinian state. They didn't say a word about that. They didn't have any problem with, or, with occupation when it was Jordan and Egypt. So what's the difference between occupation when it's Jordan and Egypt and occupation when it's supposedly Israel? The Jordanians and the Egyptians are Muslims. The idea behind drive them out from where they drove you out, the Quran quote, 
is that any land that belongs to Islam at any point belongs to Islam forever. And the Muslims have a responsibility before God to fight to get it back if anybody else rules it. So the problem with Israel is not that it's occupying land. The problem with Israel is that it's a non-Muslim state on land that they say is belongs to Islam. And so what I said at the beginning, that it's a, a religious conflict that has a political aspect, I hope that is clear now, that the occupation was no problem whatsoever as long as it's Muslims running the thing. But the Jews, it's even worse. Because the Quran also says in chapter 5, verse 82, you will find that the most intense in hostility toward the believers are the Jews. So in other words, the Quran is saying to the Muslims, the Jews are your worst enemies. So in Israel, you have a double insult to Islam. It exists on land that they believe is theirs, and it's a Jewish state, and that's their worst enemy, the Jews. And so this is why there has never been any negotiation, any settlement that has ever worked. And there have been so many going back. The uh, President Jimmy Carter got Anwar Sadat, the President of Egypt, and Prime Minister Menachem Begin of Israel together in Camp David in 1979, and they made a deal, and it was supposed to bring peace. It didn't. In the 1990s, Bill Clinton did it with Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin in the Oslo Accords. Didn't work. George W. Bush had the roadmap to peace. Didn't work. There have been so many others. At one point, a prime minister of Israel offered the Palestinian Arabs 98% of the land they were claiming. Only a little bit of it were they reserving for the state of Israel. And in compensation for that, he was also giving, giving them some land that they weren't claiming. So that they would have a state that was actually larger than the state they were asking for. They turned it down. Why? Because the whole idea is to destroy Israel altogether. There is no state of Israel of any size, like I said, that would ever be acceptable. Another aspect of the problem with occupation and saying that this is occupied territory is that pretty much every land on earth is occupied territory. You've probably heard that you're on stolen land in the United States. People like to say that on college campuses especially. Have you ever heard that? And that's true in a certain sense, and it's not true in another. There is probably no place on earth that you could say is not under the control of people who were not there originally. Take, for example, Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is claimed by the Lakota Sioux, the Native American tribe, as sacred land to the Lakota Sioux. But they don't tell you that the Lakota Sioux drove out the Cheyenne a few years before the Americans showed up. And so if we give it back to the Lakota Sioux, well, what about the Cheyenne? And who did the Cheyenne take it from? But only when it comes to Israel does suddenly all, these, all, these, all this common sense goes out the window. Another thing is about refugees. Did you know that Palestinian refugee status is passed down to children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and that that's not true of any other 
refugee group in, the, in human history. The definition of a refugee is somebody who leaves a place, is exiled, or leaves a place because of war or whatever crisis is going on and goes to, is forced to go to another land, right? And then you settle in the other land and you have children and your children are not refugees. That's how it works. Except if you're a Palestinian. And then you're a refugee if, you're, if your parents were refugees, if your grandparents were refugees. What does this mean? It means that the people who left Israel voluntarily, ordered by the Arab League in 1948, they were refugees, you could argue, but very few of them are still alive today because that was a long time ago. However, there are 7 million Palestinian refugees in the world because there are more born every minute. In order to keep the crisis alive as a stick to beat Israel with, the rules were changed. When Israel won back the West Bank, or Judea and Samaria, and Gaza from Egypt and Jordan in the Six-Day War in 1967, it moved into those territories, and the Sinai as well, which it gave back after the Camp David Accords. And every country that has ever been attacked in an aggressive war by an aggressor has taken territory, or many of them have. It's, it's, it's common throughout history. You look at a map of Germany before World War II and a map of Germany after, it's smaller. Why is it smaller? Because they started World War II and they lost. And the Poles and the Soviets and the French said, we're taking this territory from Germany to punish them for starting the war and to protect ourselves from them in the future. And nobody ever says, oh, the, it's terrible, the Polish occupation of Eastern Germany, they should give it back. It's so horrible that the Poles have occupied uh, one third of what used to be Germany. Nobody says that, it would be absurd. But when Israel, is in the West Bank and Gaza, which it took control of after a similar, aggress a similar aggressive war, then suddenly it's a terrible occupation. So you see, you're being actually lied to on a systematic basis, and it's very skillful, deeply rooted lying that builds upon other lying until it's virtually impossible to discover the truth. And it's continuing today in a very, very sophisticated way. Because as Mark Twain said, the lie travels halfway around the world before the truth is finished putting on its shoes. And it's the same thing. Did you hear, for example, Al-Akhli Hospital in Gaza, not long after the massacre, the, the Israelis bombed a hospital and 500 people were killed. Did you hear that? Did you hear that it turned out that Palestinian Islamic Jihad, another jihad group in Gaza, actually bombed the hospital when they, it was an errant rocket they were shooting at Israel. Did you hear that not 500 people were killed, but 10? And that it wasn't the hospital at all, it was the hospital parking lot that got hit. But the major news agencies and all the, the, the sources from which people form their opinions they said this about 500 people killed when Israel bombs a hospital, goes all around the world. I'll bet if we went down into Santa Barbara tonight 
and asked 10 people on the street, did Israel bomb a hospital and kill 500 people? Eight or nine of them would say, oh yeah. And many fewer would know the real story. But it's this empire of lies that we have the responsibility to stand against and to know the truth and to defend the truth unapologetically and unashamedly. This is a very difficult situation, but it is all the more important to understand that we have to stand with Israel as Americans because we were hit with the same jihad on 9-11 that they were hit with on October 7th. The people who hit the United States on 9-11 and killed 3,000 people in New York and Washington, they were motivated by exactly the same ideology, exactly the same belief system, exactly the same goals as those that the people who hit Israel and massacred 1,400 people on October 7th hold. And so the demonstrations on college campuses with people coming out in favor of Hamas, that's obscene. That's like coming out in favor of Al-Qaeda after 9-11. And it is important for all free people and all free nations to stand together and to fight against this common enemy, or indeed it will one by one pick us off and continue to advance. The jihadis believe they're fighting a 1,400-year struggle that begins with Muhammad and the Quran and the orders that the Quran contains to fight against unbelievers and subjugate them under the hegemony of Islamic law. They don't think this is a war we're going to fight for a while and then we'll have a treaty and it'll go away. And we've never been able to understand this kind of thing in America. General Petraeus, who was the commander of the uh, Afghan U.S. forces in Afghanistan way back in 2005 or six, he said, this war could take another five or 10 years. And I thought, what are you, crazy? This war is going to take hundreds of years, thousands maybe, as long as there are people who still believe that they have a responsibility before the supreme God to wage war against their fellow human beings, then we have to be prepared and understand what we're dealing with. And so I hope that I have brought a little bit of clarity about this to you at this point. And if you have any questions or comments or death fatwas, I'll take them now. All right, we have time for some Q&A. So if you just raise your hand, I'll be bringing the mic around. And we're going to start back here. Hi, my name is Gabe. I'm from Westmont College here in Santa Barbara. Could you just define like Hamas and Hezbollah and kind of their origin and how they operate today and how I think Hamas was elected by a majority of the Palestinians? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first, Hamas. Hamas means Islamic Resistance Movement. It's an Arabic acronym, and they are dedicated in their own words to destroying Israel because of Islam. They says, it says in their charter, Israel will rise and will continue until Islam obliterates it. They see this completely as an Islamic religious duty to destroy Israel. It's not a political thing or about land at all. They were founded in 1987. Uh, they were elected in 2005, I believe it was, uh, with 70% of the vote. 
And just recently, there was a survey taken showing they still have the support of 57% of the Gazans. They took control of Gaza when it was supposed to be under the Palestinian authority of Mahmoud Abbas, but they didn't think he was strong enough against Israel. And the 57%, it sounds good because you think, well, they got 70% back then and now it's 57. They're losing support, but actually the groups that were more popular were even worse. Palestinian Islamic Jihad and the Lion's Den are even more brutal and bloodthirsty jihad groups than Hamas. Hamas is also funded by the Islamic Republic of Iran, even though it, the Iranians are Shiites and Hamas is Sunni and Shiites and Sunni generally hate each other. Uh, there's an old Arabic expression that translates to my brother against my brother, but both of us against our cousin. And so the idea is that yes, they hate each other, but they hate the Jews more. Hezbollah is actually even more of an Iranian group. It's an Iranian proxy group. Hezbollah means the party of Allah. And it's a Lebanese Shiite jihad group that the Iranians put there and started training in the late 70s. And in the 80s, in 1983, they were responsible for blowing up a marine barracks in Beirut, killing hundreds of American soldiers. Uh, since then, they have stayed away from Americans and are concentrating on fighting the Israelis. But they also have an international aspect. And they've been in northern Mexico in the last few years working with the drug cartels. The drug cartels in northern Mexico suddenly started beheading people. They learned that from Hezbollah. And uh, they're there. I'm not telling them I'm not here. <clears throat> Hi. Hi, my name is Maryam Al-Najjar and I go to San Diego State University. So I'm actually Middle Eastern from Iraq um, and I am 100% pro-Israel. I am considered a traitor to my Middle Eastern community and most of my Middle Eastern friends. Um, actually, one of my friends disowned me and was like, I can't be friends with you just because of your opinion. Um, so my question to you is how do I navigate that and how do I navigate the backlash? I feel for you, I'm sorry, but it's virtually impossible to navigate because, once again, this is all about Islam. And Islam teaches, for example, you ever heard that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are the three Abrahamic religions and how we're all common children of Abraham? And that, that sounds nice. It's, it's, it's sweet. Maybe we can all be friends. We're all Abrahamic. But the, and see, it's based on the Bible because Genesis it says, Abraham, you will be the father of many nations, right? So here we are. Great. But the, 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 the Muslims don't read, Quran, they don't read the Bible. They read Quran. And in chapter 60, verse 4 of the Quran, it has Abraham telling his father, because his father is not a believer, there will be enmity and hatred between us and you forever until you believe in Allah. So see, the point I'm making is Islam teaches not every Muslim might go with this, but many do, that Islam is the most important thing there is to the degree that you cut off your father, you cut off your parents, your brothers, your sisters, certainly your friends, if they are not on board with the Islamic program. And so that's what you're up against. And that's what you're dealing with. That's why they say that you're a traitor, because they see it as an Islamic cause, as I just explained. And so you're going against it, and the Quran says cut off such people. So... Uh, you can try to reason with them 
And every human being is different. You may find people who are receptive, but it's going to be very difficult. Hi, Mr. Spencer. My Hi. name is Angela Anderson. I'm a junior at the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. Um, so my grandfather was born in Iran, born and raised. Um, but whenever I stand up for Israel, obviously people point out that I'm a white girl who they say has no idea what they're talking about. How do you recommend I go about standing up for Israel? Well, tell the truth. You know, uh, uh, educate yourself very thoroughly. Know the facts. Know, uh, learn responses to the Palestinian propaganda. I just gave you some. There's plenty more. Uh, I have a, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for the, pardon the advertisement. I'm not all that sorry, but uh, pardon me anyway. I have a book, The Palestinian Delusion, which goes through this whole thing in great detail and will give you a lot of ammo against the uh, arguments that they raise and the propaganda that they spread. But the best response is what you just gave yourself, that uh, you say that I'm a white girl who doesn't know what I'm talking about. Well, my grandfather's from Iran. Where are you from? You know, uh, I actually have roots in the Middle East, and I know these, the situation from my own family telling me. And that can be very effective. <clears throat> this is great. The applause after every question. You're going to give me a swelled head. Uh, hi, I'm Jake. I'm from the University of Buffalo. Um, uh, my question is, do you think there's any way that Islam and peace in the Middle East can ever coexist? Never. No. Okay. Sorry. But look, it's a maximalist imperative. Chapter 8, verse 39 of the Quran. Fight them until persecution is no more and religion is all for Allah. Now think about that just for a second. Fight them, that's us, until persecution is no more. That sounds like defense. If we're persecuting the Muslims, they can fight us. Fair enough. And religion is all for Allah. Well, is your religion for Allah? Mine's not. And so that means even if I'm not bothering them, they want to fight, they've got to fight me. Now, here again, I'm not talking about every last Muslim, but this is what's written in the book. As long as there are people who believe that, then there's not going to be peace. Hi, my name is Kenton, and I go to Portland Community College. Um, Oregon? Uh, yes. Oh, dear. Yes. <laughs> it's been a little intense. There's a very big Muslim population in Portland. Um, kind of bouncing off the question that was just asked, what do you think the solution to the Middle Eastern conflict is? Do you think there will never be a solution, there will always be war? That's what I hear from the Christian side a lot. Um, but I would be very interested to know if you have a proposed solution um, or any ideas about that. I do have a proposed solution, but it'll never happen. Uh, but it could be, the problem could be solved very easily. And you might think this is a terrible solution, I disagree. This is the solution. I said that the Palestinians are not distinguishable linguistically, culturally, or religiously from the Arabs of Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. Let them go live in Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. And you can say, but that's not their home. Their home is over here. Well, I'm sorry about that. But there have been refugee populations all throughout history like I was talking about with the Lakota Sioux and all that, people are always moving around. 
And, you know, my grandparents were exiled from the Ottoman Empire for declining to convert to Islam. And I'm not a refugee. They're refu they were refugees in the United States. But I'm not going to stand around and whine about that. I'm going to get on with my life. And there, were, there was massive dislocation of peoples after World War II. But do you hear about any refugee problem in Europe now? There were millions of Poles and Germans and Czechs and, and, and all sorts of people displaced after World War II. And they, they went and lived somewhere. And they got on with their lives. And the, 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 the governments of Jordan and Syria and Lebanon won't give the Palestinian citizenship. Why is that? Because they want to keep Palestinians as stateless people so that they can keep this problem alive and keep on using it to destroy Israel. So the solution would be for them to relent, grant the Palestinian citizenship, let them go live there. It's right next door anyway. It's not that much different. And that would solve the problem, but that will never happen because of the Islamic imperatives that I explained. <clears throat> Um, I'm Evie Zell, and I go to UCLA. Uh, my oh, question is, sorry. Yeah, what would you say to people who are asking for a ceasefire right now between, I guess, Hamas and Israel? I would say, why do you support Hamas? Uh, and that's what we have to do, is take the, turn the moral high ground back again and reclaim it. Um, they are always claiming the moral high ground and claiming the uh, truth of their rhetoric, and we have to challenge them at every point. The idea of a ceasefire right now would be to stop Israel from destroying Hamas, which it has to do. Now, mind you, if Hamas is destroyed, there'll be another jihad group. But it will, take, it will set them back years. It will be a massive defeat for the global jihad. If Israel was destroyed, it would be a massive defeat for the forces of freedom, and it would be emboldened the jihad to a degree that, we have not, that would make 9-11 look like uh, a walk in the park. And so we have to understand what's at stake. If we have a ceasefire, we're stopping Israel from destroying Hamas, which would be a massive defeat for the forces of jihad. The forces of jihad need a massive defeat. And so we shouldn't stop them. And people who say that, then we, they have to be challenged on that basis. Why do you want Hamas to continue? Hamas is brutal and bloodthirsty. They rape, they behead, they kill. What's good about them? Why do you want to keep them around? <clears throat> Hello, thank you for speaking with us today. My thank name you. is Caitlin. I go to the University of Florida. Go Gators. Um, we recently hosted Ben Shapiro on campus with the title, Hamas is Evil and its Defenders are Jew Haters, which was not met with very welcoming um, energy from True, any though. of our students. Um, and then, When he's right, he's right. Yeah. Um, since then, memorials have been destroyed on campus. Flyers have been torn down of missing people from Israel, yeah. and uh, people are chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free on campus. Why are people blindly following such a hateful and anti-Semitic rhetoric? Well, because they're indoctrinated bots who don't know any better. Uh, they've been thoroughly propagandized, and so they're working on the basis of their propaganda, and they're increasingly violent because part of their propaganda is that their opponents are evil and evil doesn't have rights you are bound to respect. And so 
the problem is the root of the problem is the alliance between the left and the jihad. The left controls our nation's universities. And the left loves jihad. Why does the left love jihad? Because both the left and Islam want to establish an earthly paradise and rule it by a reign of terror. And so they're blood brothers. Think about every time there's been a far left regime in the world. In the world. Going back to the French Revolution and the Soviet Union and communist China and democratic Kampuchea, look that one up, and any other one you want to name. And what do they do? They get in power and then they kill their enemies. And anybody who gets out of line after that is too terrified. Or anybody who's thinking about getting out of line, I should say, is too terrified to get out of line. So they rule by fear, you see. And if the fear doesn't work, then they build a wall and keep everybody in. Islam actually works the same way. They're going to establish the paradise of Islamic law on earth. And if you get out of line, you'll cut, they'll cut your hand off or your head or stone you to death. And so you're too afraid to get out of line. And so they're both authoritarian systems that rule by terror. And so they see each other. They see the blood brotherhood that they have, and they love each other. And so the professors on campuses are mostly Marxists. And so they teach that all this Palestinian propaganda about how they are an oppressed people who need liberation. And as a result, have been told, as a result of having been told this, they think that they have a duty to go out and brutalize and be uh, rude and nasty to people who support Israel because they're evil. And you know, another thing about Marxism, as well as Islam, is also that they see the world in very black and white terms. There's no gradations, there's no uh, uh, nuance, there's no complexity. It's all either you're with us or you're against us, which means either you are good or you are evil. And if you're evil, the Quran says, chapter 8, verse 55, that the unbelievers are like animals. And so you're not even human. The Quran says you're the most vile of created beings if you're an unbeliever. That's chapter 98, verse 6. So if you're, if you're that terrible, and of course the left will call you a saboteur, a wrecker, uh, 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 a, a capitalist, who, 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 a white supremacist oppressor, all that stuff. And so they're dehumanized both on both sides. And so no wonder they treat you so harshly. <clears throat> we have time for one final question. Hi, my, hi, my name's Kyle. Uh, I go to the University of Michigan. Um, and my question for you is the Gazan Health Ministry recently said around 12,000 Gazans are, um, have died due to um, Israel's attack. So my opinion, or my question is, well, what's your opinion on it? Do you think they're inflating the numbers to get sympathy from the UN? Or do you think there's any other underlying reasons for them to lie about this? Yeah, let's remember who the Gaza Health Ministry is. That's Hamas. There is no, no other group that runs the Gaza Health Ministry. It's Hamas. And so to say 12,000 people were killed and to report it as fact, which the mainstream media irresponsibly and criminally does, it's, it's like this. If this were World War II 
and the U.S. had just fought a battle against the Germans. And then the uh, New York Times says uh, the Americans killed 12,000 German civilians. Source, Nazi propaganda ministry. And that's what it's like for them to be quoting the Gaza Ministry of Health. That's, that's Hamas. And Hamas lies. We saw it with the hospital. I explained during the talk. They, the Gaza, same Gaza Health Ministry was the source for 500 people killed when Israel hit the hospital. When it was actually 10 people killed when Palestinian Islamic Jihad hit the parking lot. And they lie all the time because... Muhammad, see it all goes back to Islam once again. Muhammad allowed for lying. He, he forbade lying, except in two situations. A husband could lie to his wife to keep the peace. And when you got four wives, you might need to do that a lot. And in wartime, you can lie. He said, war is deceit. War is deceit. So if you think war is deceit, then you're going to use deceit as a weapon of war, and this means you have to inflate the casualty totals of civilians because you know how well that plays for the European Union and the United Nations. They hear civilian casualties and they open their checkbooks. And that's what you want, and you want them to hate Israel. But the fact is, Israel is the most careful army in the world to avoid civilian casualties. They are the only army in the world that notifies people before they're going to bomb a place so that they can get out. Because maybe the area, the building is the headquarters of Hamas. So they say, we're bombing this headquarters of Hamas in three hours. So get out. Hamas, meanwhile, launches attacks from places like school playgrounds and hospitals. Right now, there's the big battle for the hospital. Why is there a big battle for a hospital? Is Israel that evil that they're battling at a hospital? It's Hamas's main headquarters, which they built in the hospital knowing that Israel wouldn't hit it. And so Israel went and said, get all the sick people out of here because we know it's your headquarters and now we're coming in. But meanwhile, the whole oper modus operandi of Hamas all these years has been to mount attacks from civilian areas so as to draw retaliatory fire it could use for propaganda purposes. Hundreds and hundreds of examples you can find about this easily. Just search around. Also, they fake atrocities when they're not provoking retaliatory fire on civilians by mounting attacks from civilian areas. They're faking atrocities. Just search around and you'll see uh, corpses in body bags sitting up and typing on their phones and things like that that show that the whole thing is fake. I actually saw the uh, just yesterday a video of all these people. It was terrible. Oh, my goodness. All these bloody corpses in this building that Israel had just bombed. And it would tear your heart out, except the cameras kept rolling and the bloodied people got up and walked away and started wiping off the blood they weren't really dead at all. They weren't even wounded. They were actors. Now, I'm not saying that Israel never does hit civilians, but it takes great pains not to do so. And when you see a lot of these atrocity images, 
Many of them have been proven to have been faked. And thank you very much. <laughs>